0: happy new year to everyone. Um, I'll mention to you this unusual thing that Scott called your attention to and that's on the refreshment table. I try to remember to make them available each year. It's a Bible reading chart and uh, it's real simple. It has every book of the Bible so it goes from Genesis to Revelation and each box is a chapter in that particular book. That's all it is. And I came up with this some time ago for my own uh, purposes, I, I, I had trouble with the yearly Bible reading plans that give you a date on which you're supposed to read certain passages. Because if you miss a day or two, you already failed. You feel guilty. You just give up and, and don't. And anyway, that's what I do. So I came up with something that isn't time sensitive. There's no dates on this. It's just boxes. So when you read you You put a check mark in the box or fill it in, some people do colors, etc, et etc, cetera, et cetera. and then you can track your Bible reading so as to ensure at some point this is at your own pace you will have read through the entire Bible. You do not have to um, set an annual goal and say i'm going to read the Bible this year if you do, fine, but you can take two or three years what 's the difference and uh, so what I do, for instance, I started at the beginning of this year. Again, I'm reading in the Psalms. So I'll read 10 Psalms. I'll, I'll check them off, and then I'll go into another book of the Bible, maybe one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Then I'll come back to the Psalms. But my advice would be whatever book you start in, except maybe the Psalms, uh, start at the beginning and don't quit till you get to the end. So don't hop around because God gave us... The books of the Bible, as you know, with the beginning, middle, and end. And you won't get the whole flow if you, if you read a chapter here and a chapter there. Now, you can read a couple chapters each day. Sometimes you have time at your disposal. You could read five chapters. And then it's very encouraging to check off the boxes. So this is a plan for success, not for failure. You can't really fail because there's no dates. There's no time frame. Nothing like that. It's just very encouraging every time you check in a box. Anyway, I left a bunch of these or some, anyway, on the refreshment table, so please help yourself to it. It's the... law. Thank you, Scott. Wow. My my heavens. I mean, anytime Scott does something even semi-useful, it's amazing to me, personally. Um, Folks, it's the lost art of simple Bible reading. We're, we're going to do Bible study, and there's Bible memorization, and we listen to parts of the Bible preached. All these are good things, but we, we don't want to miss out on the very simple discipline of simply reading the Bible. God could use it. So if this helps you, great, and if not, you can just leave it behind. Speaking of the Bible, we are in Second Samuel chapter 13 today. I'll tell you in advance, it's a bad chapter. It's not encouraging very much at all. <clears throat> it's a sordid tale of family dysfunction, uh, pretty much resulting from the sin of the head of the family, in this case, David. But I didn't write it. It's in there. So we're going to read it, make application from it. So it's Second Samuel chapter 13. And here's how it begins. Now, it was after this. Now, when you read something like that, you're obligated to ask the question, after what? And that's David's uh, affair with Bathsheba and his plot to have her husband, his successful plot to have her husband murdered and the birth of the baby and the death of the baby and after all that, that's what we're talking about. After this, Absalom, son of David. Now, David had a lot of sons and daughters because he had a lot of wives. It really was a weakness in his life. We'll talk more about it, sexual things. <clears throat> anyway, one of his sons was Absalom. He would have been David's third son by a woman named Ma'akah, who is mentioned way back in chapter 3. And Um, Absalom had a beautiful sister now the fact that she's described as beautiful is something to take note of because the scriptures rarely do that they just don't make a big deal over one's physical attributes unless there's a point to it the point here is that this is an attractive young gal she happens to be the sister of Absalom David's third son they have the same mother. So they are fully brother and sister. So Absalom and Tamar were birthed by the same lady, maakah and had the same father, David. So uh, Tamar is Absalom's beautiful sister, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. <clears throat> yeah. So somehow... <laughs> This is going to be a real sordid tale, but it's in the Bible. We have to read it. Amnon was the first son of David, but not by Ma'akah. He had a different mother. So that would have made him the half-brother of Absalom and Tamar, if you get the picture. He, the half-brother of Tamar, a beautiful young gal, he loved her. Well, that's what the text says. It's highly inappropriate, even though she's only his half-sister. I'll show you in a little while. This is not good stuff. You should not have this kind of attention even to your half-sister. Does he really love her? Well, we'll see in a little while that probably not. He surely lusted for her, and you will see evidence of that in just a second. So verse 2, Amnon was so frustrated because of his sister Tamar, that he made himself ill, for she was a virgin, and it seemed hard to Amnon to do anything to her. So here's the picture. They're all living in the royal precincts. They're part of the royal family, David's family. But they would have lived apart. They had their royal apartments. Amnon had his home, Tamar would have been in a little more protected environment because she was a beautiful, young virgin, probably a teenager. In those days, virginity was a prized commodity. We have really drifted. But in those days, it was valued to such an extent that it was guarded and protected Therefore, she didn't flit about on indiscriminate dates. That's not the way it worked. She was a young, beautiful virgin, and therefore, guys' access to her was sorely limited, including that of her lusting half-brother Amnon, and this is why he became so frustrated to the point that he became physically ill. This is a creep. This guy is a creep, for crying out loud. He's making himself sick because he can't have access, physical access, to his beautiful, young, virgin, half-sister, and this is driving him crazy. Folks, that's not love. That's called lust. Some, uh, when I was a new Christian, a guy who was discipling me told me, and this was quite helpful, he said to me, uh, Stuart, uh, love can always wait to give, but lust can never wait to get. And you're going to see here in just a second, Amnon has no restraint whatsoever. First of all, it's an inappropriate relationship. This is his sister. Well, anyway, uh, verse 3, Amnon had a friend. Well, you don't want a friend like this. He had a friend whose name was Jonadab. He was the son of a guy named Shimea, who happened to be David's brother. So Jonadab was not only Amnon's he was his cousin and Jonadab was a very shrewd man it's not a bad thing to be shrewd but it could be he's a um, wheeler, dealer, mover, shaker you know, kind of a tricky guy he's a shrewd guy, Jonadab now if Jonadab was really Amnon's friend what might Jonadab have said to him in a situation like this any thoughts? yeah, way to go Ray Something like that. You're a creep, bug off, that's your city. Exactly right. Would have kind of cooled his jets. And that would have offended Amnon. But the Bible says, uh, Proverbs 27, verse 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. That's what it says. But deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. This is not his friend. He's going to, well, you'll see what Jonadab does. In this chapter, if there's a thing, it's people not doing what they should have done. There's nobody who gets it right in this chapter. Nobody intervenes <coughs> and interferes with a deadly cycle of sin. Not Nobody. Here, Jonadab could have stopped the whole sordid of tale right here by confronting him. He said, you're my friend. You're my cousin. I love you. This is not right, bro. Take a shower. Do push-ups. Do something. This is just not the doggone thing to do. He could have done it, but he didn't. Instead, here's what he does. Verse 4. He said to him, O oh, son of the king, in so doing, he reminds Amnon of his royal privilege. You don't have to go through all this nonsense. You be royalty. Son of the king. Why are you so depressed? Morning after morning. There's no need for you to be depressed. Uh, wh- why don't you tell me what's going on? And Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, the sister of Look at how prominently and unashamedly he labels her correctly as his sister, the sister of my brother Absalom. Jonadam then said to him, come on, buddy, this is not right. Back off. You should not do this. Have you prayed about it? How can you stand before God? And he doesn't do that. He says to him, lie down on your bed. See, he's a shrewd guy. So he comes up with this charade. Lie down on your bed. Pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, because David, with tremendous shortcomings, still, in some ways, was a really good dad. Jonadab knew if David's son is ill, David, a caring dad, would show up at his bedside. So, uh, Jonadab is shrewd. He can read people well. So, when your father comes to see you, say to him, please let my sister, Tamar, come. And give me some food to eat, and let her prepare the food in my sight that I may see it, and eat from her hand. So Amnon lay down, pretended to be ill, and when the king, that's David, came to see him, so Jonadab got it right, Amnon said to the king, please, let my sister Tamar come and make me a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Doesn't mean actually out of her hand, it means eat the, the food that her hands have prepared, So verse 7, then David sent to the house of Tamar. See, they had their little private royal residences saying, go now to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. Now, let me ask you a question. David's not stupid. You're in this situation and you're David. What might have you been thinking at this time? Does Does this sound right? Is there nothing here that should have alarmed or alerted David? Can you what would you do? I mean, you're going to send your young daughter, teenager, whose virginity is really being guarded, <clears throat> into the home of her half-brother to cook some food because for some reason it's important for him to have food prepared by her folks, these are royal people. David's the king. Don't you think he has cooks? Better than some young, maybe 16-year-old kid? What are you talking about? Wouldn't you wonder why is he making this request at this particular time? Wouldn't you say so as not to give an opportunity for some kind of misbehavior? Uh, I'll get you cheeseburger. I'll go buy Burger King myself. It's nothing. You know what I'm getting here? I think David was losing his moral voice because of what he'd done. He had a sexual relations with another guy's wife. Then he had the guy killed. The baby died. The woman became pregnant. The baby died. You know, all this. I think he was losing his moral authority and knew it. He was forgiven, he acknowledged his sin before God and found his forgiveness. But there are consequences still. One of the consequences, in I think he couldn't tell people any longer, what to do with regard to moral imperatives. He lost his voice. Jonadab says nothing. David says nothing. And this is just all kind of unfolding because nobody's intervening. So verse 8, Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house and He was lying down, and she took dough, kneaded it, and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. She took the pan and dished them out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, have everyone go out from me. So everyone went out from him. Why didn't everyone do something? Out of everyone, don't you think one person would have realized, what the heck is this? Why does this guy want to be alone with this young teenage virgin? what is up nobody does anything everybody just looks the other way so amnon wants everybody out and they leave verse 10 amnon said to tamar bring the food into the bedroom that i may eat from your hands so tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them into the bedroom to her brother amnon when she brought them to him to eat he took hold of her and said to her come lie with me My sister, this guy is so carried away by his lust, even in spite of the fact that he is fully aware of the relationship, brother, sister, he wants her to sleep with him. But she answered, no, my brother. Don't violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Don't do this disgraceful thing. It's not that sexual impropriety such as this did not take place in Israel. What she's saying is it's not acceptable. In the surrounding pagan nations, the non-covenant people who don't have God's law, yeah, there's all kinds of crazy sexual practices, but that's not the way we do it here. We're part of the covenant community. She's trying to reason with this guy. And furthermore, she says in verse 13, as for me, where could I get rid of my reproach? Can you imagine having sex with your brother and then walking around town. I mean, how could I get rid of my reproach? And as for you, you'll be like one of the fools of Israel. She's looking out for his best interest as well. By fools, that's not an intellectual pronouncement. It's moral. When you see the word fool or foolish in the Old Testament, it's usually um, um a a function of one's moral limitations. So even bright people of high IQ can be fools in the moral sense. That's what she means. You'll be like a fool. People will be talking. You impose yourself on me, I'm your sister. She's trying to reason with him. Now, therefore, look what she says. Please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. What in the world does that mean? Well, one possibility is she knew she's about to be raped. Therefore she throw this out. She threw this out as a desperate attempt to get out of that doggone place. If you want me, ask Dad, the king, he'll allow us to be married. She's trying to maybe some say to buy time just to get out of there. It's kind of a smart thing. Or she meant it. Now, why in the world would she consent to being married to this guy who's about to impose himself upon her before they're married? Well, I'll tell you why. Because in that culture, to lose your virginity before marriage was a disgraceful and shameful thing. And even to be married to a creep like Amnon would be better than for him to steal your virginity while you're unmarried. Why? Because that woman, that young gal, would be penalized for the rest of her life. Marriages were arranged then. Her her parents couldn't give her away to some man, expecting her to be a virgin. And if she was not a virgin, that would be to defraud the man. She was not market, pardon the expression, she was not marketable anymore, which means she couldn't marry and she wouldn't have children. And so I guess she thought, well, it would even be better to be legally, lawfully married, even to one such as you, than for you to rob me of what you would rob me of if we had sex. And so... Um, Now, you might say, well, you know, she's not really his sister. Yeah, but listen to this. Even though she's the half-sister, Deuteronomy 27, verse 22, Cursed is he who lies with his sister, the daughter of his father or of his mother, and all the people shall say amen. So the Torah later on Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, then legislated against sexual relations even between a half-brother and a half-sister. So anyway, verse 14, he didn't go for this, her suggestion. However, he would not listen to her since he was stronger than she. And so he violated her and lay with her. And Then Amnon hated her. Why well, I had to slow down here. What in the world? This guy is so in love with her, he can't even sleep. He's making himself sick because he can't even have access to her. He finally has access to her through this crazy lion plan his friend suggested. He sleeps with her and hot on the heels of all that. Now he hates her. What's up with that? Yeah, guilt. That's uh, a good point. She was a reminder to him of guilt and perhaps impending punishment, all the rest. You know what else I think, uh, Gail, that she perhaps reminded him of? Um, Studies of rapes uh, see certain patterns. One is that the rapist is usually stronger, just as Amnon was physically stronger. So the rapist physically imposes himself on a victim, And it looks like he's approaching things from a position of strength, but it's only physical strength because emotionally most rapists uh, are overwhelmed with insecurity and weakness. That's part of the payoff. It's not sexual, it's emotional, it's dominance. You dominate a weaker, more vulnerable being, and that's the pleasure. It's emotional payoff almost more than sexual. Now, if this is the case with Amnon, I suspect it is a very needy, emotionally weak individual. Her presence would remind him of that as well. Therefore, he was disgusted, turned off by this one who, without a word, would remind him of his guilt and of his weakness and all the rest. And so the text, in fact, count the number of times it uses the word hate or hatred in verse 15, Amnon hated her, that's number one, with a very great hatred, number two, for the hatred, number three, with which he hated her, number four, was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go away. So she said to him, verse 16, no. You would say, what in the world? You would think she wants to get out of that place but she says no why not because this wrong in sending me away says she is greater than the other that you have done to me yet he would not listen to her now why did she say that why would sending her away be a greater wrong than the commission of rape why what would that be about well uh in the bible there's a provision for this kind of thing and uh It's in Exodus 22, verses 16 and 17. If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged and lies with her, he must pay a dowry for her to be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the dowry for virgins. So there was a procedure in ancient Israel if this impropriety was committed and she knew he wasn't going to comply with that meaning he would compound the wrong he already did to her by violating god's law even further perhaps she meant that and also this if he forced her out she would not in the eyes of some look like the victim she might be seen to be a willing participant maybe even one who seduced her brother into this activity. He, being such a dastardly fellow, would not be far from framing it this way and saying, oh, My sister came in here, I was ill, and she threw herself upon me. And so she said, That would be a greater wrong because not only would she have been raped and lost her virginity, but now she would be a shamed and marked woman for the rest of her life. And so uh, she didn't want to leave under these terms. Uh, so verse 17, then he called his young man who attended him and said, now throw this woman out of my presence and lock the door behind her. Look at that. Calls upon his assistants to toss her out. Now she had a long-sleeved garment on. Now why is it important for us to know what she was wearing? Well, you'll see. For in this manner, the virgin daughters of the king dressed themselves in robes. Guarding one's virginity was such an important thing in that day that uh, ladies who had not had sex with the man yet were distinguished as such even by the clothes they wore so that they would be respected. Hence, this long-sleeved garment, robes, was a signal to everyone, treat this young gal with respect if you love her okay make overtures if you lust for her you better back off don't do that well i wish young people got that figured out today today you get young gals they don't want sex they want love will give themselves to a guy who doesn't want love he wants sex and what you end up with is the same kind of deal he doesn't love you and you've just lost something pretty doggone precious just to show you how far we have drifted from God's mooring point. <laughs> Look at this. So anyway, uh, he wants to have her thrown out, door locked behind her. So she had a long-sleeved garment. From this manner, virgin daughters of the king dressed themselves in robes. Then his attendant took her out, locked the door behind her. Tamar then put ashes on her head. She is grieving. It's as if someone, something died. Hope died for her she put ashes on her head she tore her long-sleeved garment so that's another reason why the garment was made reference to this a sign of virginity was now torn asunder because she lost her virginity and she put her hand on her head it was it was like it was like she was going through the streets in this fashion and she was crying aloud as she went she's grieving the loss And then Absalom, her brother, said to her, he heard her, he saw her, he asked of her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? He knew. Why didn't he do something beforehand? Why didn't Jonadab do something? Why didn't everyone in Amnon's house do something? Why didn't David do something? Why didn't Absalom do something? People are not doing anything. And this gal got raped. And so he tells her, even before she answers. But now keep silent, my sister. He's your brother. Don't take this matter to heart. How in the world could he require a young teenager who just was raped not to take this matter to heart? You know what that's called? Double victimization. It's worse than the rape. Victims of rape have told me. I counseled once with a young gal who was raped by her stepfather several times, she finally broke down and told the mother, her biological mom. The biological mom denied it. He loves you. The mom was so fearful of being alone, she persuaded herself, as over against the best interests of her own daughter, that this didn't happen. The young daughter told me what hurt more than the rape was the denial that it happened by the mother. Double victimization. That's what's happening here. Her big brother tells her, Amnon did this to you, didn't he? He's your brother. Keep silent about it. Don't take it to heart. That's worse than the actual rape. By the way, a number one sign of an unhealthy, dysfunctional family are family secrets. You have any? Deal with them. Family secrets. Shh, he's your brother. Let's not upset the apple cart. Let's keep this quiet between you and me. Family secrets like that are a sign of a very sick and unhealthy family. So Tamar remained and was desolate in her brother Absalom's house. For how long was she desolate in his house? Yeah, forever. Yeah. In fact, Absalom probably feeling so bad about what had happened to his sister, Tamar. Later, we'll read in 2 Samuel, he had a daughter and he named the daughter Tamar after his sister, knowing his sister can never have children of her own. It's not going to happen. She cannot be given in marriage because she's not a virgin. She won't have children. So, uh, verse 21 when King David heard of all these matters, he was very angry. That's the typical man response. It's selfish. Where is he? I'll get him. I'll tear him apart. I'll kill him. That's easy. It does no good to the victim, for the victim. You know, there's no one in this chapter is seeking to care, who is seeking to really care for her. David's upset. He's angry. Does he console his daughter? Does he wrap his arms around her? Does he get her counseling? He's angry. It's a typical man thing. It's not helpful, by the way. But that's what men do. He's very angry. He's angry, but nowhere in the text does he do a doggone thing about it with reference to Amnon. Amnon. He applies no penalties, no consequences. He does not let the law run its course. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Listen, David's sin was forgiven, but there's a consequence, and the consequence is he lost his voice of moral authority. He couldn't even confront his own raping son, Amnon. He could get angry, but he couldn't even look him in the eye and say, how could you do this? This is wrong, and now... This is what the consequence is. You don't see any of that in this entire chapter. But, verse 22, Absalom did not speak to Amnon, either good or bad. So didn't have family functions. They get together. Absalom knows what Amnon has done. He's having essentially no conversation with him, maybe some small talk at best. The text says he's not speaking anything to him, good or bad. For, why not? For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. He tells Tamar to keep quiet, you know, don't make a big deal over this, but he is absolutely overcome by his uh, insatiable appetite for vengeance, as you will see. In fact, it came about after two full years. Now, when you are focused on avenging a wrong uh, for that period of time that wrong has mastered you you are no longer in control two years here's what happened he had sheep shearers in a place called Baal Hatzor there's a place in Israel called Hatzor it was one of Solomon's fortress cities that's not this this is a different place near a city called Ephraim it's about eight miles northeast of Jerusalem, open area of field. He had sheep shearers there, and he invited all the king's sons. A sheep shearing time was a huge celebration in that neck of the world uh, woods at that time. It's party time! So Absalom invites all the royal household, including the king, to this sheep shearing ceremony eight miles north of jerusalem Absalom verse 24 came to the king and said behold now your servant has sheep shearers please let the king and his servants go with your servant he invites david and his crew to to accompany them eight miles away but i think he doesn't want david to come because he has a plan and i think he knows david is not going to come I mean, that's not the thing a king's going to so easily do. King can't just take off on his own. You've got to have your bodyguards, your entourage, the whole royal groupies kind of a thing. He anticipated, I think, rightly, that David wouldn't come. And so the king, verse 25, said to Absalom, No, my son, we should not all go, for we will be burdensome to you. Although he urged him, he would not go, but blessed him. David, you know, said, bless you. Have a good sheep shearing time. I'm going to stay back here. Then Absalom said, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? David's a little suspicious. But, verse 27, when Absalom urged him, he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Is that a good idea? David's not stupid. He knows, boy, this doesn't sound right. What is abs- why did he make a special request for his brother Amnon to go up there eight miles away in the woods, in the open? Amnon raped his sister. David's not stupid. Surely he'd be thinking about all this stuff. Once again, he lost his voice of moral authority. By the way, that's what sin does. Even though you're fully forgiven in Christ Jesus, it's a little hard to look someone else in the eye and point out their sin. You lose your moral authority. That's one of the consequences of sin. And so David, this doesn't feel good to him, but he doesn't do anything about it. And so verse 28, Absalom commanded his servants saying, see now when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. Yeah, see. Now we can have arguments till the time the Lord's returned about whether you can drink or not drink. Maybe you can argue that all you want. <sighs> I like the practical principle. Forget about theology just for a second. When you drink, you drop your guard. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to know that. And that's exactly what's happening here. They're going to get this dude drunk, Amnon. He's a shrewd guy, he knows, he's aware of the rape. He, he knows his brother Absalom is heading in this show here. Surely he would suspect, I could not turn my back on my brother Absalom. But when you drink, you drop your guard. So you can argue scripture all you want. Well, I, I, the alcohol content in the wine of the Bible is different. You would have all these arguments again until the time of the Lord's return. To me, the whole deal is taken up with this. Drinking makes you a fool. You do foolish stuff. You say foolish stuff. You look foolish. You, you fall like a fool. I'm speaking as a fool who drank most of his life. why well, just do it? Because it tastes good with spaghetti. Come on, man. Get a Coke. <clears throat> it's not a Baptist thing. It's just a practical doggone thing. I just don't want to lose restraint. I have a sinful inclination. So do you. I don't need anything making it easier for me to sin. So anyway, they get the guy drunk. Absalom says, you know, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, when I say to you, strike Amnon, then put him to death. That's what you do. Don't fear. Have not I myself commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. I myself. He's an arm of the government. That's Absalom. Man, that's the king's son. He has royal authority. He's telling his underlings, don't worry about the murder. Kill this guy. When I tell you to do it, it's me telling you to do it. Be courageous and valiant about it. It's me. You know, folks, uh, the government is God's idea. Government. Not bad government, but the concept of government is God's idea. Therefore, it ought to be respected. However, you don't render unconditional obedience to the government. What if the government, for instance, requires you to do something that displeases God? The Bible says, I must obey God rather than man. There are times when civil disobedience is called for. That's when you look government in the eye and say, government, with all due respect, I cannot do what you're asking me to do. I'm willing to submit to the consequences but I must obey God rather than man. For instance, abortion is legal here, right? In fact, this new House of Representatives wants to wants the government to refund it. By the way, buckle up. This is going to be an interesting political year. We have nutcases in the House of Representatives. <laughs> nutcases. That's the new political party. Nutcases. One nutcase. Wants people of a certain income to be taxed 70%. 70%. She is a nutcase. I say that with no respect. <laughs> <clears throat> anyway, uh, so the government at present authorizes abortion. Terrible. But when the government Mandates abortion, what are you going to do? That's when you have to look government in the eye and say, with all due respect, government, I must obey God rather than man. I will not abort my baby. Is that far fetched? I mean, it's already happening in China. If you have too many kids, the Chinese government mandates you abort any additional children you may be producing. That's when you have to look government in the eye and say, I mean, throw me in jail. I accept the consequences. But I must obey God rather than man. Why did these guys say, okay, since you're the government, we'll kill this guy? There is nobody in this chapter who's doing what they're supposed to be doing. Nobody. Well, anyway, Absalom is a guy who liked that saying, uh, don't get mad, get even. That sounds good, huh? especially in Texas. Don't get mad, get even. Well, let me tell you what God's approach is. It's not that, it's this. Romans 12, verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You've got options when there's a wrongdoing done to you or a beloved family member. You can seek vengeance on your own. But if you do that, you squeeze God right out of the picture. Never take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. In other words, if you think you're a better justice maker than God, then go get it. Deal with the wrongdoer your way. But I think our father is a better justice maker than you and I are. Anyway, Absalom didn't believe it, so Amnon is killed. Now, verse 29, the servants of Absalom... What time are we working? Okay, we're doing good. The servants of Absalom did to Amnon just as Absalom had commanded, and all the king's sons arose. They took off. They were afraid, and it was while they were on their way. A report came to David saying Absalom struck down all the king's sons. That's not true, but that's the report. Fake news. <laughs> not one of them is left. Then the king arose, tore his clothes. He was grieving, and even the servants joined in. Verse thirty-two. Jonadab, this creep is still there and there in the royal household. Jonadab uh, uh, said, "No, no, no! Don't let my lord suppose they put to death all the young men, the king's sons. Amnon alone is dead, because by the intent of Absalom, this has been determined since the day he violated his sister Tamar. How did Jonadab know this? <laughs> he knew about it." He was a shrewd, scheming dude. He could have intervened. He could have kept the rape from happening. He could have kept the murder from happening. Nobody in this chapter intervenes appropriately. Not one stinking person. So, verse 34, now Absalom has fled. Jonadab is reporting this to David. David. And the young man who was the watchman raised his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. Jonadab said to the king, Look, the king's sons have come according to your servant's words. See, I told you the truth, king. As soon as he had finished speaking, the king's sons came. They lifted up their voices. They wept. They all grieved together. Verse 37, Absalom fled. Where'd he go? He went to a guy named Talmai, son of Amihud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. Who's this guy that Absalom went to? It's his father-in-law. He went to his father-in-law. It's about 80 miles northeast of Jerusalem. He went there to hide it out. So Absalom had fled and gone to Geshur. was there three years. Three years, no contact with his father. And the heart of King David, verse 39, longed to go out to Absalom for he was comforted concerning Amnon since he was dead. What does that mean? He was comforted concerning Amnon. Well, you grieve the loss of a loved one and the intensity of the grief is just tremendous at first and then for a long time thereafter. And it comes and goes and different different things trigger the grief. And then there comes a time, not when you ever forget the absence of a loved one. I don't mean that. Not when you're ever without pain. I don't mean that. But you're kind of reconciled to the absence of your loved one. And you find comfort. God provides comfort. That's what happened with David. But what he was really grieving over now was not his deceased murdered son. It was his living son who he had no contact with for three years. So what's up with all this? I thought David confessed his sin and I thought he was forgiven. Yeah, but don't miss forgiveness. Forgiveness means we can be in restored right relationship with a holy God, still have life and blessing and future and hope, but forgiveness doesn't mean the consequences of our sin suddenly vanish. There's probably not a person in this room, including me, who isn't right now living with the consequence of past sin. Now, why, if God is so good, does he allow it? We need it. David needed it. David actually needed to see some of the same things being done in his family that he done did. Same stuff. Why? Because David would be prone to do it again. That's why. You think that deal with Bathsheba was a one-time miscue? This guy whose sexual inc- his sexual inclinations were out of doggone control. A lot of people in leadership positions are this way. They're under stress. Everyone wants a piece of them. And they say, I deserve a break today. And so they're given to unbridled sexual relationships of a very superficial, fleeting kind because they don't know how to provide for their own legitimate needs and they don't know how to, they don't know how to take a break. Hey, Calvin, how you doing, baby? Let's go. Cal- um, you can call him baby too. We met uh, a couple weeks ago was it last Wednesday God bless you brother good to see you you're late like by an hour (laughs) oh nice recovery nice recovery all right so look uh David need to look at his dysfunctional family and not be overcome by guilt and shame no 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 once Jesus forgives you forget that stuff but he needed to be reminded of what oh God I need thee every hour I cannot trust myself. Your spirit in me is strong, but my flesh is weak. Oh, God, I have to approach life differently. I'm not that important. I can take a break today. I have to learn how to deal with stress better than the way I've done it. Oh, God, I have met my own needs apart from you. I have been autonomous from you, independent. Oh, God, I need to see all this because it will enhance my sense of dependence on you. That's our biggest need, to be reminded without him we can do take a breath would you take a breath now breathe out you couldn't do that if God didn't enable it that very little thing you couldn't do that you cannot breathe unless God provided the breath of life how dare we think we can do anything without our intense dependence on God and I know God's discipline worked on David read the Psalms Oh my goodness, he became a man after God's own heart. He abided in Almighty God. He loved his time with God more than anything else. And so the discipline of Almighty God upon David was much different than punishment. Punishment is what a master does to a slave. Discipline is what a loving father imposes upon a son, not to destroy, but to develop and to perfect. In fact, it says this in Hebrews chapter 12, I'll read this to you as we... Verse 11, chapter 12, verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. A loving father did not absolve David of the natural consequences of his sins, sins of the father being visited on the children, not to pain and hurt David as an end in itself, but to discipline him so that he would come to be in even more right standing with Almighty God. That's how it is with you and I. Now I want to close with this. There's a lot of grievous things in this chapter. Here's one more. Absalom underestimated the capacity of his father to forgive. That's a very grievous thing. He stayed away now for three years. No contact. He ran from his father. He murdered his father's son. Yeah, he was a guilty party. How would his father deal with his guilt? He will hold me responsible. And so he had to run away. He underestimated his father's capacity to forgive him. What about you and me? Are we underestimating the father's capacity to forgive? Are we, like Absalom, on the run from a God... Who stands ready to embrace us, not condoning our sin, letting us live with the consequences thereof, but forgiving our sin, wrapping his arms around us and saying, welcome home. If your energy is being used on trying to get away with God, you're just like from God, you're just like Absalom. You're underestimating the Father's capacity to forgive. Jesus, impaled on a cross, shouted out, Father, let them off your hook. They don't have a clue. Boom. And died for your sin and mine. The Father's capacity to forgive us is uh, unfathomable. And so the Bible says his grace is greater than all our sin. And the Bible says though we be faithless. He remains faithful. And the Bible says I'll never leave you or desert you. The Bible says, I'll never let you go. The Bible says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Absalom, this was the grievous, maybe the most grievous thing in all the chapter. Absalom, underestimated his own father's capacity to forgive. What about you? Is there sin? It's like a deep, dark hole, I'm telling you. Try to get out of it. Try to get out of it. Don't underestimate your father's willingness to forgive, whatever it may be. We're talking about murder right here. Rape and murder and the whole deal. We're not talking about missing choir practice here. This is some big stuff. Don't run from God. His grace is greater than all your sin. Now, here's the deal. If you run from God, you're going to go deeper, deeper in this unfathomable dark place. But our Father is so willing and desirous of getting out of it. He wants to disturb us and rattle our cages so that we start climbing out of the dark hole of sin. There's a way back. It's called confession and it it's called repentance. Confession means call it what it is. Oh God, I did this. I chose to. I rebelled against you. I knew better and I'd ask confession. Just agree with God. Repentance. Repentance is not so much turning from sin. I get to, I don't, Look, you can't say, oh, God, I promise never to do this again. What? You are overestimating your own abilities. I'll never make promises like that to God. I say, oh, God, I'm turning from this to you. I'm coming back to you. Will you help me? Will you strengthen me so that I don't do this again? Because I have it in me to do it again. That's what repentance is. Change direction from independence from God to dependence on God. So I learned from this chapter. I have the same makeup of Absalom, Amnon, so do you. Sinful inclination. But I don't want to approach it the way Absalom did. I don't want to underestimate my father's willingness to forgive. That's a slap in his face. I think that hurts him more than anything else. One other thing. When you're on the threshold of sinning, the temptation is right there. You can taste it. You can feel it. You're like two seconds away from pleasure. Please think of 2 Samuel 13. Three minutes in the sack is not worth a lifetime of pain. That's on average how long the sex act lasts. Did you know that? I'm a little graphic. Sorry, sorry about that. That's science. That's the b- physiological, biological deal. Now, I know stuff goes before and after it's supposed to anyway. <laughs> but the actual consummation of the deed, three minutes, Mr. Stud. Mr. Gorilla Man, three stinking minutes for a lifetime of pain. Think of Second Samuel 13. And that private encounter... It's not so private. God will not be mocked. It has an effect on other people who are not even in the room. Read 2 Samuel 13. What's happening is David's family is like a mirror held up to him. I don't want to put a curse on my kids and grandkids. Do you? Run to the father. Weak. Broken. Broken. The Bible says he will not despise a broken, contrite heart. He does despise a proud person. I can do it. You can't breathe unless the Father provides it. Second Samuel 13. I wish it wasn't in this book, this Bible. I didn't write it. Well, I'm just reading it. and You're reading it. It's in there for a reason. Not so that we would learn about Israel's history, but that we would make application from these sinful humans who have exactly the same nature as we do. Nobody did it right in Second Samuel 13, and just to encourage you to come back, it gets worse. <laughs> Run to Jesus and live. Lord Jesus, that's the message not to run away, but to you and live. Put it within us, incline our hearts, even if it be through pain to do that very thing. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you folks. See you next time.